Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 125. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land of the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts, in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, that we might honor you more along the path, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are in a uh, series of sermons on the Songs of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, uh, not preaching on all of them this fall, but making our way through eight of them. Prayers for Life's Journeys. This was a group of psalms that served in ancient Israel when ancient Israelites would make pilgrimage. Uh, they would make pilgrimage three times a year. Uh, I saw somebody making pilgrimage this morning as I was driving down 95. Uh, it was a large RV. Uh, on the back of the RV was a gold wing. Uh, towed behind the gold wing was a Jeep Wrangler, and on the back of the Jeep Wrangler was what looked to be like another gold wing. Now that's a pilgrimage, not quite the kind that was taking place in ancient Israel, uh, but some of you make pilgrimage to uh, uh, Central and South Florida annually. Well, three times a year, ancient Israelites made pilgrimage, albeit by foot, uh, they made pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the three big festivals. And these psalms would have been songs that they would have sung uh, on their way to Jerusalem. We looked at Psalm 121, a prayer for protection. We looked at Psalm 122, a prayer for peace. We looked at Psalm 123, a prayer for mercy. And then the last psalm we looked at was 124, a prayer of thanksgiving. This morning we're going to go to Psalm 125, which is a prayer of trust. And this psalm naturally divides in half. In verses 1 through 3, there are some affirmations that the psalm makes about those who trust the Lord. And then in verses 4 and 5, there are two prayers that are offered for those who trust. But before we look at that... Uh, let's just ask uh, an introductory question, because it says uh, those who trust in the Lord are. Um, who are those who trust in the Lord? And I'm going to come back to this in the context of the sermon. But just notice uh, how the psalm talks about those who trust in the Lord. Uh, those who trust in the Lord are not the wicked. 
verse 2. You see, there's a contrast between those who trust in the Lord on the one hand and the wicked on the other. Those who trust in the Lord are not the wicked. Uh, Also, from verse 5 at the beginning, those who trust in the Lord are not those who turn to crooked ways. There's a contrast between those who trust in the Lord on the one hand and those who turn to wicked ways on the other hand. Also, at the end of verse 5, those who trust in the Lord are not among the evildoers. There are those who trust in the Lord, and there are the evildoers. So, uh, do you trust in the Lord this morning? If you trust in the Lord this morning, there are some things that go along with that in terms of how you view yourself. You do not view yourself as the wicked. You do not view yourself as those who turn to crooked ways. You do not view yourself as evildoers, because those are the people who do not trust in the Lord. And if you trust in the Lord this morning, then you are not among the wicked. You are not among those who turn to crooked ways. You are not among the evildoers. Now, the psalm also says some things about who those are that trust in the Lord in a positive way. Verse 2, they're God's people. If you trust in the Lord, you can say, I am, I'm one of God's people. Uh, that's not too much of a stretch. Verse 3, that gets to be a little bit of a stretch for us. You see, those who trust in the Lord are the righteous. Not the wicked, the righteous. Now that's going to start to be a little bit of a stretch, isn't it? How many of you are comfortable just saying, I'm righteous. It's true. You see, you, you, ha- you only have one of two choices in this psalm. Your choice is either to say, I am one of the righteous or I'm one of the wicked. Those who trust in the Lord are not the wicked. They are the righteous. This is a stretch for us. And we're going to find out why it's a stretch for us, but we need to stretch our understanding of who we are and how we identify ourselves. Uh, The beginning of verse 4a, those who trust in the Lord are the good. How many of you are comfortable saying, I'm a good person? Some of you are. Some of you aren't quite so sure. We're going to talk more about that in the context of the sermon. But again, you have a choice. This psalm says you're either one of the good or you're an evildoer. Those who trust in the Lord are not the evildoers. They are good people. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But it's true. How about the second part of verse 4? Those who trust in the Lord are the upright in heart. How comfortable are you saying, I am upright? I'm an upright person. I see one hand there. Thank you for that hand. Okay, I see a couple more going up. I'm about to have an altar call. (laughs) Lastly, Israel. And of course, that makes sense in the old covenant context that my people are Israel. But in in one of our previous sermons on these songs of ascent, we saw how ancient Israel is in the new covenant, the Israel of God. Ancient Israel, my people, 
are those who are united to Christ by grace, through faith, the Israel of God, the descendants of Abraham, the true seed of Abraham. That's who the church is, the Israel of God. This psalm, and it's not just this psalm. The psalms as a whole stretch our understanding of who we are. We're very comfortable saying, I'm a sinner. We're not at all comfortable saying, I am righteous. It's not that one is true and one is false. They're both perspectives on who we are. But we tend to lean toward only the, I am the wicked, I am the sinner, I am the depraved. We don't tend to relate well to the language of the psalms where we are the righteous. Oh, even to go into the New Testament terminology, uh, we have a choice, sinner or saint. How does Paul address the church routinely in his letters? Saints. Even the church at Corinth, they were hardly saints, but they were saints. Well, more about, I just want to set the stage uh, and also just, I mean, I think we could go home right now. This is enough to, to think about. Uh, just to think about how we understand who we are. Because how we understand who we are shapes how we live out our Christian lives. That's why Paul typically in his letters will spend half of his letter telling us who we are in Christ before he ever goes on to tell us what to do. Because how we live out our lives is shaped by how we view ourselves which is why, for example, Romans 1 to 11 is all about who we are in Christ. And it's only in Romans 12 that Paul starts to say, Therefore, in view of what I've said to you in these 11 chapters, here's how you, to, you are to live. So just some food for thought. Well, back to the, uh, to the, the sermon proper. Two things. First of all, notice the affirmations that this psalm makes about those who trust in the Lord, verses 1 through 3. And the first affirmation, uh, and it's a timely one, the first affirmation is they are secure. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now, I know that for the ancients, when, when they heard that, Mount Zion wasn't just like saying Schenectady. Uh, unless, of course, you're from Schenectady. Mount Zion is a, it's a phrase that is loaded with emotion. Of course, it depends on your age. But for many... Uh, To say Vietnam is not just to refer to a country, is it? When you hear Vietnam, it comes with all of this negative baggage, political unrest, social upheaval, questions about just war. It's not just a name, is it? And that's, that's Mount Zion. Only unlike negative stuff... Mount Zion just brings all of this beautiful, positive energy as we hear those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Go to Psalm 48 for a moment. Psalm 48. 
Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. Mount Zion. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. When ancients heard this language, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. I don't know, pick your favorite spot in the whole world, multiply it by 10, and that's how the ancients felt when they heard that they were like Mount Zion. Mount Zion, a place of security. The only thing that I can think of uh, in terms of a place of security, would, it would be to say that we are like the rock of... See, I didn't even have to finish it. You knew what was coming. The rock of Gibraltar. A lot of us probably have no clue where it is. Uh, and if we have any image of it, it's because there's an insurance company that uses a graphic sketch of it as their, part of their logo. But it doesn't matter whether we know where it is or anything about it. When you hear Rock of Gibraltar, you think secure, firm, unshakable, immovable. And that's what the ancients heard when they heard that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, like the Rock of Gibraltar. Go to Psalm 104, verse 5. Psalm 104, verse 5. Notice it says, God set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. Or we could translate it, it can never be shaken. Mount Zion for the church. How many of you have ever been in an earthquake? We've had some earthquake experience. Uh, How many of you have ever been in a hurricane? I ought to see some more hands going up here. Well, you know, uh, we lived in Southern California, and we've lived here, and we've been in earthquakes, and we've been in hurricanes, and they're two completely different experiences. For one thing, we typically have like eight or nine days to get ready for a hurricane, yes? I mean, even before we know what's coming or where it's going, it's on every weather channel all the time. There are no surprises coming. Uh, We know it's on its way. We have plenty of time to leave town if we wish to. Ah, an earthquake. No warning at all. No preparation. An earthquake psychologically is much more unsettling than a hurricane or a tornado. Because we're used to thinking that there's one thing that is really firm and solid. It's the ground. And when the ground underneath you is shaking, and you can feel that shaking going up through your house and stuff is falling off of your walls, it's like, Well, what is it like? Let's go to Psalm 46 and see what kind of description we might get there. Psalm 46. This is a well-known psalm. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. 
But notice what the psalmist goes on to say. Therefore, we will not fear, fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Now put this together with Psalm 104. Psalm 104 says that God put the earth on its foundation so that it will not shake. And the psalmist is saying, even if the earth is shaking, I will not fear. He's saying, even if my whole world as I know it is collapsing all around me, I will not fear. Why not? Because those who trust in the Lord, not in anything else ultimately, not even trusting in the solidity of the ground that this building is founded on, because as secure as we think that is, it is not. Now, God forbid... But it's quite possible that before the end of this service, a sinkhole could open up right underneath us and we could all drop 20 feet down. That is quite possible. It happens more frequently than we like to admit. Even though we think that we are on solid ground, we are not. It's an illusion. Unless we trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They shall never be shaken. And that's why the psalmist in 46 and 48 say, we will not fear. Psalm 46 is one of the most radical affirmations of faith. Even if my whole world around me is collapsing, we will not fear. Uh, We think of the fear and terror in Paris. And when we think of that, it immediately, as Americans, draws our minds back to 9-11. When all of a sudden, all of the security that we thought we had seemed to have dissipated in an instant. Who knows what is next and where is next? We live in a very unsettling world and we cannot pretend that that's anything but the truth. We never know what is around the corner, but we do not fear. Why not? Because those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, and it can never be shaken. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but God's kingdom endures forever. And as we trust in the Lord, we are part of that unshakable kingdom which endures forever. And therefore, we do not fear. Those who trust in the Lord, they're secure. And the reason why they're secure is verse 2, they're surrounded. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds those who fear him. Jerusalem, surrounded by mountains, Natural fortification, natural protection, everybody knew the geography. And so when the psalmist said, uh, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, they got it. They got that picture of warm enclosure. Uh, you might think of a, of a small child and how a small child might fall and, and get hurt. And mom and dad come and pick up that child and both hug the child. And the child is totally surrounded As the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people. The reason why Mount Zion brought such positive energy and emotion 
and such a profound sense of security was nothing so special about the city other than the fact that it's where God was. That's why, to go back to Psalm 46, the psalmist will say, uh, God is in her midst. It's because God is in her midst that she does not move. It's not the city of ancient Jerusalem. It's the God of Jerusalem. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He surrounds us as his people. Psalm 34, 7 talks about the angel of the Lord surrounding God's people. It's because God surrounds us with his presence that we are secure and we cannot be shaken. They are secure, verse 1. They are surrounded, verse 2. They are safe, verse 3. Go back to Psalm 25. In verse 3, sorry, not 25. We need an extra one in there, don't we? 125, 3. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. They are safe. God's people, because they trust in the Lord, are secure, they are surrounded, they are safe. Safe in many ways, but this psalm draws out one particular way in which God's people are safe. One thing the Lord protects us from is doing wrong. And one way the Lord protects us from doing wrong is by not permitting evil to so dominate our situation that the temptation to do wrong is simply too strong for us. The psalmist says, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. And that's a difficult one to interpret. Is it saying that it will, it, if, is it, it'll be there for a while, but it won't remain? Uh, it, it'll never show up at all? It's difficult to know exactly what the psalmist is saying here, but what, he, what is very clear is that, is that the righteous will never be put in a situation where they might use their hands to do evil. It seems sometimes like darkness has the upper hand. And uh, it seems sometimes like evil is a seven-headed monster. And every time you chop off one head, another one just pops back up in its place. And so we perhaps begin to despair, or perhaps we become tempted. Uh, Now, maybe we're not tempted to do physical violence with our hands. But what does Jesus teach us? Jesus teaches us that it's not what goes in that is the problem. It's what comes out that, it's, that is the problem. Because what comes out of us is revealing what's really deep inside of us. And so nobody in this room might ever respond to the violence that we see in our world by becoming a physically violent person. But remember what Jesus said. It's really not so much what you do with your hands as it is what's going on in your hearts. 
And how much violence might there be in our hearts? Not that we are necessarily tempted to act that violence out, but in our deep thoughts and our attitudes toward them, whoever our them might be, uh, what is it that is, that is revealed by, uh, by our violent thoughts and wishes and hopes? Do we, do we yet still have the heart of God? Do we have the heart of Jesus who said, pray for, pray for those who persecute you? He didn't say pray against them with hatred and with malice, but pray for them out of deep compassion and concern that the kingdom of God might come and God's will might be done on earth in the most unlikely places as it is in heaven. First Corinthians, you see, uh, chapter, what is it? Chapter, is it 10, 13? It says that in situations in which we find ourselves, there's no temptation given that isn't just a common one, whereby God doesn't always make a way of escape. You see, that's, that's Paul's version of Psalm 125. The scepter of the righteous will not so dominate that God's people will be compelled to, to do the wrong thing or backing up say the wrong thing or backing up even think the wrong thing. But God will always make a way for us as his people because we trust in him to have his heart. A heart that says, I am not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. That's why God is exercising his patience. Why hasn't Jesus come back already? Paul says in Romans that it's because God is patient. And God is is waiting for people to take that opportunity to come to him in faith and in repentance. And so, one thing for sure that the Lord protects us from is doing wrong. He does not permit evil to so dominate our situation that the temptation to do wrong is too strong. Those who trust in the Lord are safe. There's always a way out from doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, thinking the wrong thing. Three beautiful affirmations about those who trust in the Lord. What are those affirmations? They are secure. They are surrounded. They are safe. And then two prayers in verses 4 and 5. And the first prayer is simply, Lord, do good. Back to our psalm. Notice it says in verse 4, Lord, do good. Now, what's that mean, do good? I, I was talking to my, my, my one son and I were spending some time together this week, and he said, I forget exactly what he said. I think he said something like, um, I think he said, I, I hit that good. And I said, no, you didn't. You hit that well. And he said, oh, I know that. He said, I, when people say things, when people say I did good, he said, I always say, no, Batman does good, you do well. 
what does it mean, do good? Well, he, let's go to one text, Genesis 32, 9. Genesis 32, 9. This is Jacob praying, and he says, O God of my father Abraham, Lord God of my father Isaac, Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives. Now, my translation says, I will make you prosper. Uh, The Hebrew text is our exact same verb, I will do good for you. Uh, do good is a, it's a very broad idea in the Old Testament. Prosper is kind of a narrow, right? Because when we say prosper, we think in a narrow way. When I say prosper, you think what? Money. When I say success, you think what? Much broader than, in what? Success is a broader idea. So as long as we don't understand prosper too narrowly, because remember, Jesus is Lord of how many areas of life? All of areas, and so this prosperity is a prosperity in all areas of life because God is the creator of all areas of life. But that text gives us a sense of what the psalmist is praying when he says, Lord, do good. He's saying, prosper your people. Prosper the work of their hands. Prosper their their vocations. Prosper them in their families. Prosper the life of the church. Do good. Prosper your people. That's what the prayer is for. The the kind of sticky part is when the prayer says, do good to those who are good. That's where we can get hung up. And we can kind of get hung up here for good reasons. Because Psalm 14 says, there's none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who does good. So some Psalms say, There's no one who does good. So if the prayer is, Lord, do good to those who are good, but there are none good, why bother praying the prayer? It's kind of a silly prayer. There must be some way in which we can understand that from one perspective, we are good, and yet from some other perspective, there's none good, no, not one. How do we put it all together? Because Psalm 37.3 talks about us as doing good. Um, I may have told you the story once of, uh, of, a, of a, a more mature student at West, uh, at, uh, at um, where do I teach? <laughs> RTS. And we encountered in, in, in each other in the hall, and, and he had done something very special, very special. And I just said to him, you're a good man. And his immediate response was, no, I'm not. There's no one who does good but one. Only God is good. And I said, well, I get what you're saying, but haven't you read the proverb that says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children? Which is why the, we ought to get rid of the bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. That's not godly. Uh, a godly, good man wants to build uh, a financial nest egg. And one of the reasons for building that financial nest egg is so that he can pass it on to the next generation. That's just biblical economics. And the Bible says a good man 
And so if, if, there's a, if there are Christian uh, couples out here who are building financially for the future, and one of the purposes for that is to pass it on to the next generation, you can look in the mirror and you can say, we're a good couple. That's what the Bible says. Those who do good. So from an ultimate point of view, There is no one who is good in the sense that no one can rely upon their goodness as their hope for their entrance into heaven. Nobody is that good. Because as the Bible says, if we keep the whole law and stumble at just one point, we're guilty of breaking it all. So all you have to do is sin one time and you're not good enough to get into heaven. You might be the best person that has ever walked the face of the earth. But if you have violated God's law just one time, you are not good enough to get into heaven because God views you as breaking the whole because God's law is like a beautiful crystal. If you break just one part of it, the the whole crystal is broken. So from that point of view, even if there is a person who lived 99 years and sinned only once, it is true there is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. No one can hope of having a right standing before God based upon their own goodness. That's true. And it is true that if you are saving up for your children, you're good. That's a good thing to do. Uh, And And if you trust in the Lord, you are part of the group that is called the good. And as you're part of the good, by faith, by grace, in Christ, then you can say, Lord, do good to those of us who do good. We are part of that group. It's a prayer for God to prosper A prayer for God to prosper those who trust in him. Prosper them in their vocations, in their families, in the kids' schooling, uh, in their relationships, in the work of the local church, in every area. Lord, do good to those who are good. Lord, do good to those who trust in you. And the second prayer, and this very briefly, Lord, grant peace. Since we've already preached extensively on this one, I'm just going to remind you of that prayer for peace in Psalm 122 and how at the end three times we see the word shalom, uh, 122.6, 122.7, 122.8. And so this really short prayer, Lord grant shalom, is presuming that you've already looked at Psalm 122 and you understand that shalom is wholeness in every area of life. Shalom is what we had totally in the garden before the fall. Shalom is what heaven will be like in all of its perfection. And shalom is what we hope to experience more and more of in this life as we anticipate experiencing the fullness of that shalom in the life to come. Wholeness in our minds, wholeness in our bodies, wholeness in our emotions, wholeness in our relationships, wholeness in our finances, wholeness in every area of life that Jesus is Lord of. Lord grant shalom. And uh, Psalm 128.6, another song of ascent, is going to end this exact same way. Uh, Shalom on the Israel of God. Well, 
let's just wrap this up by going back to where we started. Those who trust in the Lord are good people. They're righteous people. They're people who are upright. And it's, even after this short sermon, still hard for you to think of yourself that way. But that's who this psalm says that you are. You are good. You are righteous. You are upright. And we could add, you are not arrogant and you are not self-righteous. You don't have any of those things attached to you. How is it that you can say, I'm a good person. I'm a righteous man. I am upright in heart. How can you do that without, not without others thinking you're self-righteous and arrogant, but without you being self-righteous and arrogant? Well, you remember the rich guy that came to Jesus. And he said, uh, good teacher, um, tell me about people who are good. And uh, Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about good? There's only one who is good. What do I have to do to inherit the, the, uh, the, the law, inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know the commandments. And the fellow said, oh, is that all? Just do the commandments. I've been doing that since my youth. That's easy. Well, Jesus said, okay, then go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the man went away. And why did he, what was Jesus doing there? Well, Jesus was simply showing him that not not only had he not kept all of the commandments, He had not even kept the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. And when he was confronted with a choice, his wealth or Jesus, he showed where his true loyalty was. His trust was not in the Lord. His trust was in his wealth. His wealth was his God. He hadn't even been keeping the first, let alone the rest of them. And so you see, we understand as those who are good and righteous and upright in heart, we understand what Jacob understood when Jacob prayed that prayer that we looked at and said, Lord, you have prospered me. And he went on to say, I'm not worthy of the least of these blessings that you have given to me because I realized that in and of myself, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But by your grace, I have received the gift of eternal life. You see, that's, that's, that's all it takes. You can view yourself as good and righteous and upright in a very humble and non-self-righteous way. When you, like Jacob, say, God, you have done all of this for me. Not because I have earned it or deserved it, but because you chose in your grace to give it to me through my faith in Jesus Christ. It's those who trust in the Lord who are the good, the upright, uh, who are those in the category of the righteous. It's not those who trust in themselves. And as long as you keep your eyes focused on the Lord, Day by day, trusting in him, you can expect to experience 
security. In spite of the fact that at times you think the world that you know it, as you know it, is collapsing all around you, you can still be secure and not fear because you're surrounded. Surrounded by the Lord's presence. And you can be guaranteed that no temptation will ever come down your way that you can't make it through it successfully because God has promised to always provide a way of escape. And so pray. Not only for yourselves, but for all of God's people throughout the whole world. Pray. Pray for them. Pray that they might know God's shalom. And pray that God would do good for them. And let me just close by encouraging you to pray for one people group in particular. Pray for Arabs who are Christians. And while it might not be so much in the news right now, pray for Palestinian Christians. Talk about a lost people. Arabs don't like them because they're not Muslims, they're Christians. Jews don't like them because they're not Jews, they're Arabs. Americans don't even know they exist. There are so many of these marginalized people groups that are, brothers, that are our brothers and our sisters. Pray not only that God would do good for us, but for them. Pray that the Lord would not only grant us shalom, but that he would grant them shalom as well. Because all of us together are those who trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your your grace in giving us your word that reveals to us who you are and who we are in you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would write this word on our hearts, that it might shape how we think of ourselves and that it might shape how we think of others and that it might shape what we say, that it might shape our actions, that we might live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. Praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.